Let's have a word of prayer together. Father in heaven, we do thank you so much for this holy Sabbath day, day that we can come together, worship thee in spirit and in truth, to lay aside our, our labors and our cares, our earthly cares, and think of, of things in heaven, on heavenly themes. We thank you so much for Jesus, uh, who has paid the ultimate price for us, uh, who loves us so much that uh, he came to this earth to be an example for us and to die for our sins. And we're going to take a look here this morning, Lord, at, at uh, a few of those examples. We pray for the Holy Spirit to be given to us so that we may have discernment, we may see the truth, and soften our hearts that we may learn what you have for us today and forgive us for our sins. And may we love the truth, uh, and the truth is Jesus. So may we have a deeper love and appreciation for Jesus uh, today than we ever have before. We pray that you will be with those who can be with us today, be with those who are listening and, and watching, and uh, soften their hearts as well. Prepare our hearts for what you have for us today. And uh, be with those who are sick and ill. We thank you for being near to them. We pray that you will continue. Give me the words to speak now, Lord, I pray humbly in the name of Jesus, who is so worthy. Amen. Amen and amen. In oh, okay. Uh, I've entitled this particular uh, message this morning, Stones in the Wilderness. Stones in the Wilderness. Um, in our last study, if you recall, last time we were together, uh, those who were, who were uh, with us, uh, we sought an answer to the question, didn't we? Is temptation a sin? And we discovered that the Bible declares uh, that it is not a sin to be tempted. It is the breaking of the law of God that constitutes sin, not temptation uh, ultimately to selfishness is what to, what it is when you boil it down. Um, and, and this has been kind of the theme that we've learned, isn't it, in our series, The Sin Issue. The Bible's very clear on this point concerning the definition of sin. And uh, we found it uh, only in one part of the Bible, right? One part, one scripture that defines sin. 1 John 3, 4. It's very plain, isn't it? Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. Lawlessness. Or as we, we've learned, we got into it a little bit deeper, it is falling short of the mark of God. You try to hit it, but you fall short of hitting that target. And that is sin. And the only way, friends, for us to hit the mark, the only way that we can be a law keeper, uh, again, to hit that mark, is to first receive Jesus, isn't it? And then what happens? He will change us. First of all, he's going to remove our guilt. Uh, that's the justification uh, process there, that uh, our guilt will be removed. We've been forgiven. We're looked at as though we have never sinned. Isn't that remarkable? I think it's rather remarkable. So he does that, and then he begins this process of educating our conscience. And we talked about the conscience and the will before. And then he gives us power that we need, uh, this supernatural power that only he can provide because it's not in ourselves. It has to come from outside of ourselves, friends. Uh, he gives us that power to overcome the devil's temptations. And, and what he does is, by that education process and, and this whole sanctification process, he conforms us to the will of our Father in heaven in all things. And he, he showed us how to do it. He showed us how to do it. By his life here, he showed us that process. Let's go to John chapter 1. This talks about that. John chapter 1, uh, verses 12 and 13. But as many as received him, and this is speaking of Jesus, but as many as received him, to them gave he power 
to become the sons of God. In other words, the children of God. He gives us the power. Even to them that believe on His name, who believe in Jesus Christ. You know, a name is representative of a person's character. At least it used to be. You know, Adam was named Adam because of he was created in, as a man, and God named him Adam. It reflected upon his character, his creation, see. And so we can become children of God and believe on to those who believe on his name, believe in his character. Verse 13, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, you see, but of God, born of God. That's, you know, being born again. Uh, you know, this is that new birth experience that's spoken of by Jesus uh, if you go to chapter 3. But without this experience, friends, we fight the battle against temptation alone. And that's not, uh, uh, that's not a good thing, is it? In fact, you will uh, fail, <laughs> you know, but you'll fight it alone. But the good news of the gospel Beloved, is that we don't have to fight alone. We have an all-powerful Savior who's willing and able, oh, more willing and able to help us in our battles. We have a Savior who set the example that we are to follow. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21 says, For even hereunto were ye called... Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. Now, this is a very remarkable scripture. I really love this scripture because the word example that Peter uses here in this scripture, that he chose to use in this verse, is the Greek word hupogramos. I can't pronounce it very well. But notice what it means as an example. It means this, a writing copy, think of this, a writing copy including all the letters of the alphabet given to beginners as an aid in learning to draw them. That's what that word, that Greek word means. Now, the Apostle John said that Jesus was the word, right? And not logos, but he was the debar. That's the, the Hebrew word, debar. It means the Shekinah. It means the Shekinah. Peter says that this word was a writing copy given to us beginners so we may learn how to be like the original. He was the original copy. By following his steps. I think that's rather remarkable. The English doesn't do it justice, does it? <laughs> the English language. So Christ has provided the master pattern, friends, for, for patiently enduring suffering, as the, is the context of this particular verse, which we as Christians have to faithfully copy as we trace the words on a clean sheet of paper from the perfect pattern that's placed before us. Now, how is Jesus our example? Especially when it comes to battling temptation, which is what we're going to talk about here. Well, Jesus went through the same attacks uh, that we go through, friends. Yet, he overcame these temptations by constantly drawing on that same power that's available to us. I want to concentrate uh, on this example of Jesus uh, on how to deal with temptations, for that is the way Satan tries to, to convince us into choosing to sin. He tries to convince us to be lawless. And I think everyone can understand what I'm saying, right? Let's go to um, the fourth chapter of the book of Matthew. For we're going to see the example that Jesus lived for us in his battle with the devil here in the wilderness. And we will find that in this battle with the enemy of souls, Jesus left a perfect example of how to deal with any temptation the devil uh, may use to entice us. It covers every single 
type of temptation. Let's go to Matthew 4. Look at verses 1 and 2 with me together. Matthew 4, verses 1 and 2. Then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, let that sink in. <laughs> when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was afterward a hungered. You think? <laughs> wow. That's just remarkable itself. That tells you something about the the um, the shape, physical shape, the mental shape, emotional shape that Jesus was in. Fantastic. So here Jesus was, well, he was just baptized by John at the Jordan River, and the Holy Spirit led him into the wilderness. Now the wilderness was literally up from the Jordan River. It was up in the hills. And it was either, you know, of Judea or of Perea, uh, but it was across the Jordan. Um, the exact site of, you know, this this temptation, this, this battle there in the wilderness, it's not really known. But the traditional site of the temptation is thought to be in those rugged, um, barren hills that rise up to the west of Jericho. In fact, they call it Quarantania. That's what they call it. And it alludes to the 40 days there of Jesus' stay in the wilderness. Now, the baptism occurred in the Jordan east of Jericho. We know that. And the fact that Jesus returned there at the close of those 40 days implies that the wilderness of temptation was not a, a great distance away, see. And also, I want to be clear that it was not fitting or uh, proper to baptize Jesus for any personal sins. Some people think that because, well, you, you're baptized because, well, you have to repent and be baptized, right? But Jesus had no sins. There was no need for him to repent of anything, see? But he did it as our example. And so as our example, it was both fitting and proper for him to accept that baptism by John the Baptist. And at his baptism, I mean, it was more than just a baptism, Okay, it it was a change in life. Of course, baptism is a, a a sign of a change that has occurred in your life, right? But Jesus laid aside his private life. See, for thirty years, he he basically kind of worked in private. He wasn't in ministry per se. He was no longer simply a perfect man among men. You could say he was henceforth to begin his active public ministry as the Messiah. And what is here pointed out is a special anointing with power to accomplish that task that was appointed him. As the prophet Isaiah had foretold, you know, that uh, he was going to come and he was going to save Israel. So for, in order for Jesus to be our example, let's think about this for a moment. In order for Jesus to be our example, to be our perfect example, but to be an example at all, he has to be like us, right? If he's not like us, then there's no way he could be our example, as we would not be able, you see, to match the example that he gives, as it, always, it would always be out of reach for us. And friends, God would never ask us to do anything that was impossible for us to do, especially with his needed help. That's not, that's not a, a part of the character of God. He would never do that. And, and so thinking about this, I want to share a beautiful statement with you concerning uh, the baptism of Jesus. And I want you to think about this. I want you to think about this if the thought ever crosses your mind that Jesus was different than us. Or someone tries to convince you that he was different, which a lot of ministers today teach. Even in Adventism, they teach that Jesus was so different from us. Uh, and that's, that's Catholicism, friends. That's, that's a Romanistic uh, belief. But uh, notice what it says here. Fantastic book, The Desire of Ages. I believe this is the greatest book on the life of Christ outside the Bible. It's, it's just a wonderful, 
But Desire of Ages, page 116, it says, At the Savior's baptism, Satan was among the witnesses. He saw the Father's glory overshadowing his Son. He heard the voice of Jehovah testifying to the divinity of Jesus. So picture the scene. You're there at the Jordan. You see this. Satan's right there watching it all. And he even hears the voice of the Father in heaven testifying to the divinity of Jesus. Ever since Adam's sin, the human race had been cut off from direct communion with God. The intercourse between heaven and earth had been through Christ. But now that Jesus had come in the likeness of sinful flesh, Romans 8 verse 3, the Father himself spoke. He had before communicated with humanity through Christ. That's when he, he communicated. He, he spoke through Christ. Now he communicated with humanity in Christ. That's remarkable. Satan had hoped that God's abhorrence of evil would bring an eternal separation between heaven and earth. But now it was manifest that the connection between God and man had been restored been restored. And how was that connection restored? Jesus came in the likeness, friends, of sinful flesh. Our flesh! He took upon himself human nature and with it the possibility of yielding to sin. As it says uh, in Desire of Ages, page 49, he was permitted to meet life's peril in common with every human soul, to fight the battle as every child of humanity must fight it at the risk of failure and eternal loss. You know, we, we consider ourselves that, you know, sometimes, uh, well, that's a big risk for us. <laughs> you know, and maybe it, it, it would be for us, whatever it might be. It's a big risk for us. But think about what God risked to save us. As she said, at the risk of failure and eternal loss. And only thus could it be said that he was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. Hebrews 4.15 Otherwise, friends, if as some assert, uh, Jesus being divine could not be tempted, then his temptation was a farce, and it's all a lie. So it comes down to who, who you're going to believe, doesn't it? It was through his human nature that he experienced temptation. Had his experience with temptation been in any degree, friends, less trying than our experiences with it, he would not be able to secure us. He would not be able to help us at all. But you see, we have a representative before the Father who can be touched with the feelings of our infirmities because he was in all points tempted like as we are. Hence, we are bidden to come boldly unto the throne of grace for grace to help in time of need. Hebrews chapter 4. Wonderful promises. Wonderful promises. Jesus knows by experience, friends, what humanity can endure. And he's promised to temper the power of the temptor according to our individual strength to endure. That's what Paul says. And provide the way of escape there. 1 Corinthians 10. Paul talks about that. And so, beloved, we, we will see that within every human heart, the great conflict through which Christ passed, there in the wilderness of temptation, is repeated every day. It's repeated every day. But think of this. Think of this. You know, we've all gone to some kind of schooling, haven't we? We've gone to some kind of schooling, and there's tests. What is the object of a test? Well, there can be a number of ob objects, right? But yeah, to see what you've learned, to see if it's sinking in, to see if you, you know, if if your sponge is working, <laughs> right? <coughs> Without testing, 
without the opportunity to, to choose to do right or to do wrong, there can be no character development, or very little. Uh, it's by resisting temptation that we develop power to withstand temptation. And we talked about this last time we get we were together. Uh, you don't go out seeking it, right? Uh, but this is uh, the result of it. That God allows these things, uh, and he's the one who's in control of it. We give him our will. He allows these things to, to open us up that we may see where we are in our walk what we need work on, what we need to pray about. But in order for communication to be restored to the Father, you see, Jesus had to come. He had to become like us in nature. Now, not completely so, but his humanity was just like ours. Okay? And when I say that, I mean that Jesus never sinned. And But that's the only way uh, that Jesus could have been tempted in the wilderness or anywhere else and, friends, be our example in how to overcome. He had to be like us. And and that is also uh, the only way that we can be restored today. We have to be in Christ. Our humanity combined with his divinity through the Holy Spirit. Amen? That's that born-again experience. And when I think of these things, uh, and maybe also I hope when you think of these things, uh, what an example, beloved. What an example of love to, to all humanity and to all creation. John really pegged it, didn't he? God is love. <laughs> God is love. Now, immediately after his baptism... Uh, the Holy Spirit came, remember, and lighted upon him in the form of a dove. Uh, interesting thing about a dove. Did you know that the rabbis, for hundreds of years, they used the dove as a symbol for Israel? I learned that last week. I, I'm sure I had uh, seen that before, but I had forgotten it. But that's that's just interesting. In fact, if you do go on and, and do a search and look at some of the the rabbinical uh, sites on the web and stuff, you'll see that they have the dove there as a symbol for Israel. Um, but here the Holy Spirit came and lighted upon Jesus in the form of the dove. And, uh, and also, think of this. There's no reason for supposing that the presence and the influence of the Holy Spirit hadn't been with Jesus, you know, the whole time. That wasn't the first time the Holy Spirit came to Christ, you know. But he had been there ever since his birth. But in this case, like I mentioned before, it represented a special anointing. Uh, actually, an answer to, to the prayer of Christ as he was beginning his ministry as the Messiah. From birth, friends, Jesus had been under the guidance and the instruction of the Holy Spirit. But, that, but at the time of his baptism, the Spirit descended upon him to endow him with wisdom and skill for his appointed mission. So, he's anointed. And then the Holy Spirit, he, he leads Jesus into the wilderness. And in fact, this is a lesson in, it, in and of itself. Uh, you know, before we presume to, to think we are to do the work of ministry, we must be anointed and then led by the Holy Spirit as well, right? And so there are a lot of lessons in God's Word, isn't there? A lot of lessons. But Mark says that immediately the Spirit driveth him into the wilderness. You see, Jesus wanted to be alone. He wanted to be alone to meditate, to fast, and to pray concerning what lay before him. So he goes out into the wilderness. And we see this in verse 2, which says he fasted 40 days and 40 nights. That's just remarkable. Just think about that. It's remarkable. He was in deep prayer and meditation with the Father for all those days and nights. And the Father sustained him during that time. Let's go back to the book Desire of Ages. 
And let's let's look at uh, page 114. And I want you to notice uh, what this says to us about his fasting there in the, in the wilderness. It says, When Jesus was led into the wilderness to be tempted, he was led by the Spirit of God. He did not invite temptation. Again, another lesson for us, right? He did not invite temptation. He went to the wilderness to be alone, to contemplate his mission and work. By fasting and prayer, he was to brace himself for the blood-stained path he must travel. But Satan knew that the Savior had gone into the wilderness, and he thought this the best time to approach him. The best time to approach him. You see, it was after the Savior was finished with fasting and prayer, when the Father's glory was no longer present, that he was a hungered. So we sit and we go, wow, 40 days and 40 nights, but he was wrapped up in the presence of the Father in heaven, in his glory, praying. And the Father sustained him during that. But after the 40 days and 40 nights, when the Father's glory had departed, and Jesus was there, left in the wilderness, then he realized, well, I'm, I'm hungry. <laughs> well, you know, you've been, <laughs> been out there 40 days and 40 nights. You still have a, a physical uh, body, right? By the way, um, here's an interesting study, and I may preach on this sometime, but here's an interesting study. Um, Moses and Elijah both did the same thing. Did you know that? They both fasted 40 days and 40 nights. And who were the two on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus? Moses and Elijah, right? So anyway, just a neat study. Maybe you, you can do that on your own. Um, and, and I may present that sometime. It's just remarkable. Uh, remarkable, a lot of things that you, you find in the Bible, it's like, wait, that, that happened before. There's another incident of that. It's just, it's just uh, uh, incredible. But it had been a very long time since Jesus had had his last meal, and he was in a weakened physical, mental, and emotional condition. And it is then that Satan came to attack. Isn't this the way the devil works, friends? When we're at our weakest, he attacks us at our times of greatest weaknesses. And why does he do that? Because the odds are much greater that that's when we may fall. And for this reason, it's, it's really of vital importance that we preserve our physical, mental, and emotional powers at, at the highest level of strength and efficiency that we can. I mean, like I mentioned before, the, the physical, mental, emotional condition of Jesus when he went out into the wilderness uh, and went through this, even with the glory of God around it, it was remarkable. It was very remarkable. He kept in shape. And so we need to need to as well, don't we? I mean, anything that that weakens uh, our our powers weakens our defense uh, against uh, against the devil and his temptations. You know, such things as just common things we may, may not even think about. Overwork. I mentioned this before in, uh, in uh, talking with you at times. We can overwork ourselves in good things. Well, of course we're not going to overwork our things in bad things. I hope not, right? But we can overwork ourselves. Uh, a lack of exercise, that, that hurts us physically. Overeating, of course, that's a, a big thing. Um, not having a, the right kind of diet. Uh, lack of sleep or anything else that lessens our intellectual alertness and emotional control. It tends to open the way for the devil, doesn't it? And this is an example that we, we see here in Matthew chapter 4. It was when physically, mentally, uh, and emotionally Jesus was at his weakest that the devil says, I'm going to do it now. I th I'm going to overcome him. In fact, it's been scientifically proven. Uh, I was reading something that uh, my friend Danny Vieira had shared uh, some time ago. Uh, scientifically, it's been proven that 
for us to entertain thoughts of discouragement, uh, defeat, or resentment will have the same effect on our body and mental abilities um, as some of these other things I mentioned because it weakens our immune system. And when our immune system is weakened, we are susceptible more to sickness, disease, and, and such. It's remarkable, the body that God created and how it functions and everything works together, isn't it? So we must set our thoughts, even, and our affections on things above that Paul talks about. And we need to fill our minds with things that are true and honest, pure, and lovely, uh, Paul says in Philippians 4.8. So we must bring the body into subjection to the laws of our physical being, for it is impossible fully to appreciate things of eternal worth if we, in violation of these natural laws that God has created, um, govern our being. And, of course, it's possible, friends. It is possible to have that kind of control over imagination and affections with the aid of the Spirit of God, isn't it? That's what the Bible tells us. Let me share this with you from the book, The Faith I Live By, page 222. I came across this a few weeks ago, and I thought, this is remarkable. You know, at that time, I was doing research on uh, the will and, and our conscience. But I wanted to share this with you. It says, many thoughts make up the unwritten history of a single day. So put yourself there and think of these words. And these thoughts have much to do with the formation of character. Our thoughts are to be strictly guarded, for one impure thought makes a deep impression on the soul. An evil thought leaves an evil impress on the mind. If the thoughts are pure and holy, the man is better for having cherished them. By them, the spiritual pulse is quickened, and the power for doing good is increased. So if you have pure and holy thoughts, what's going to happen? Your spiritual pulse will be quickened and the power for doing good will increase, is what she's saying. And as one drop of rain prepares the way for another in moistening the earth, so one good thought prepares the way for another. Wrong habits of thought, when once accepted, become a despotic power that fastens the mind as in a grasp of steel. The thoughts are not to be allowed to run riot. They must be restrained, brought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Let them be placed upon holy things. Then, through the grace of Christ, they will be pure and true. We need a constant sense of the ennobling power of pure thoughts. The only security for any soul is right thinking. Remember when we talked about uh, everything depends upon the right action of the will and how our conscience has to be educated. See, and this is part of what she's talking about. The only security for any soul is right thinking. Sin begins in our mind. That's where the seed is planted, remember? Our minds take the level of the things on which our thoughts dwell. And if we think upon earthly things, we shall fail to take the impress of that which is heavenly we would be greatly benefited by contemplating the mercy, goodness, and love of God. But we sustain great loss by dwelling upon those things which are earthly and temporal. So, Paul spends some time on this, telling us that we can control our thoughts. We can bring our thoughts and imaginations into obedience through the grace of Jesus Christ. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 4. Let's look at my time here. Okay. Matthew chapter 4, verse 3. Now I'm just going to read this. We're going to go through it here and then we'll come back and kind of take it apart. Uh, and when the tempter came to him, he said, If thou be the Son of God... Command that these stones be made bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. 
Then the devil taketh him up into the holy city, and setteth him on a pinnacle of the temple, and saith unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. Jesus said unto him, It is written again, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Again the devil taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them and saith unto him, All these things will I give thee if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Then saith Jesus unto him, Get thee hence, Satan. For it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God and him only shalt thou serve. Then the devil leaveth him, and behold, angels came and ministered unto him. Satan came at Jesus' weakest point, right? And he came to the Savior. Do you think he came as a demon with a pitchfork and a pointy tail? He came to Jesus. How does he deceive us? Doesn't the Bible tell us that he, he can transform himself into an angel of light and his ministers as uh, ministers of righteousness? You see, Satan came to the Savior as an angel of light pretending to have been sent from the Heavenly Father to inform Jesus that his fast was finished and he was there to minister to him. But he, he uncovered his deception, you see, when he said, If... Thou be the Son of God. I mean, wouldn't he have known Jesus was the Son of God? I mean, if he was truly sent from the the Father to minister to him, he would have known that, right? But think of this, too. Satan's word, if thou be, also confronted Jesus with the question, How do you know that you are the Son of God. I mean, think about that. We see an example of that in the Garden of Eden. It had been the, his, his purpose there to lead Eve to disbelieve the clearly stated words of God in regard to the tree of knowledge, remember? So in the same way, Satan approaches us today. He endeavors to get us to disbelieve the plain truths that are clearly stated in the revealed Word of God. And remember this, friends. A temptation always, remember this, a temptation always poses a challenge to some clearly known truth. It proposes that circumstances justifies a departure from godly principle. That's what a temptation is. I also want to mention that it was a it was a personal devil that came to Jesus. It was a personal devil that Jesus defeated. There is not the least hint, friends, given by any of the gospel writers that the temptation was a subjective experience, uh, you know, that occurred exclusively within the mind of Jesus, as some ministers contend today. It was real. Temptations, and we deal with them every day, don't we, friends? Temptations are not mind games. The devil is real, and he attacks and entices to evil those who follow Christ. It's very real. And we talked about that uh, in our series about spiritual possession. Um, so here we find, in Matthew 4, we find a full frontal assault by the enemy of souls against the Savior, and, and here is set forth our example on how to deal with it in our life. Now, how many temptations did Satan use against the Savior in this experience? And we just read it. Three temptations, right? Let's take a look at the first of these temptations. First of the three. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 4 and uh, let's look at verse 3 together.
Matthew 4 and verse 3. And when the tempter came to him, he said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. Now, let's think of the life of Jesus. On occasions, especially, uh, let's think about his, his ministry life. On occasions during his ministry, we found that Jesus, you know, they, they came to Jesus and they requested that he authenticate, right, his, his messiahship by displaying m- miraculous supernatural power. Right, I mean, you you see it in, in in Matthew 12, Mark 8, John 2, many examples of that actually. Um, but what happened? Did Jesus do that? Well, no, he refused. You see, to perform miracles when they challenged him to do so. But rather, each miracle met some specific need of the people, the people that he was ministering to. You see, Jesus did not call upon the power of heaven uh, to provide for himself anything that's not available to us. And Satan was always tempting, tempting him to use divine power himself. The first temptation had to do with material requirements of uh, man's physical nature. Uh, it stands for the materialistic philosophy of life, uh, which assumes that a man's life consists in the abundance of things that come into his possession and that he lives by bread alone, right? An appeal to the appetite was thus the basis of Satan's opening attack on the Son of God, even as it was the basis uh, of his approach to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Many of the temptations that that come to to us fall in this class, don't they? In the first place, Satan knows that temptations to the physical nature of human beings are more likely of having immediate success. In the second place, he directs his temptations to the, the degradation of our physical powers, knowing full well that through the physical nature, through the senses, our senses, he can gain access to our entire being. So our physical nature must be constantly under the control of the higher powers of our mind. And we've talked about that earlier in this series. You know, the will and the reason. Uh, So in order for us to avoid spiritual ruin, our will and our reason have to be controlled by God. The body is the medium through which the mind and the soul and the character are developed, right? That's how character is formed. It was the fact that as the Son of God, Jesus did have power, you see, to satisfy his hunger by creating food. He could have used his divinity to turn those stones in the wilderness to bread and feed his physical body. That's what made the temptation real. The temptation consisted in Satan's suggestion that Christ satisfy his hunger in a wrong way. See, That is, without regard to what the, the Father's will might be. Satan's proposal covertly insinuated that God uh, must be unkind He's got to be unkind to leave his son alone to suffer hunger, particularly when it was entirely unnecessary. Just turn those stones into bread. That's all you got to do. Another neat study (laughs) that pops to my mind is, is to compare the temptations of those temptations in the wilderness of Christ at the beginning you know, at the beginning of his ministry, with those in Gethsemane at its close. That's a neat study, too. Jesus had been fasting, remember, for 40 days and nights. And when he came out of his communion with the Father, he was weak. He was famished. And Satan thought he could take advantage of that situation. 
Let me share this with you from the Desire of Ages, page 118. When Jesus entered the wilderness, he was shut in by the Father's glory. Absorbed in communion with God, he was lifted above human weakness. But the glory departed, and he was left to battle with temptation. This is after the 40 days and 40 nights. It was pressing upon him every moment. His human nature shrank from the conflict that awaited him. For 40 days he fasted and prayed, weak and emaciated from hunger, worn and haggard with mental agony. His visage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Isaiah 52:14. So you look at him, and it was just terrible. He looked terrible. And then it says, now was Satan's opportunity. Now he supposed that he could overcome Christ. And I have to say, friends, I have to say that those who insist that it is biblically okay to treat our body any way we want needs to go back and study these temptations of Christ. They're going to fall for this same temptation. And so we need to always be evaluating our position, right? And that's why tests come, so that we may see, well, what, what is my condition? How does that relate in my relationship to Jesus, right? And so, and we learned, remember, those who, who, who know, and you can go and, and uh, listen to these uh, studies on spiritual possession, we learned during that that Satan tempts us first through our nervous system, which is integral to, to our senses, right? So don't be deceived, beloved. Uh, study out the life of Jesus. Study the counsels of the prophets concerning uh, our senses and especially, you know, appetite. Spiritual things are spiritually discerned. And if you have a humble, contrite heart, uh, you'll be led to the truth about uh, the destruction that comes to us and our character, our physical abilities, our mind, our character, uh, when we indulge in the appetite. Um, and so don't fall for Satan's lie that, well, you can treat your body any way you wish to. Uh, the Bible tells us whatever we choose to do, uh, do all to the glory of God, right? And remember, Satan tempted Eve with appetite. Let's go to uh, Testimonies for the Church, Volume 4, page 44. Satan has overcome his millions by tempting them to the indulgence of appetite. Through the gratification of the taste, the nervous system becomes excited and the brain power enfeebled. You see, you've, you've, I'm sure you've heard me say many, many times, the battle of this earth, if you want to boil it down, the battle between Christ and Satan, when it comes to humanity, is a battle for our minds. We need to have a right mind. Jesus can provide a right mind. Satan wants to destroy our mind because if he can destroy our mind, if he can destroy our mind, we will have a terrible time being able to discern what is righteous and what is unrighteous. And so our choices, see, our choices will make up whether what our destiny is going to be, what our character is going to be, what our destiny is going to be. So the battle's for our mind. She says, through the gratification of the taste, the nervous system becomes excited and the brain power enfeebled, making it impossible to think calmly or rationally. The mind is unbalanced. Its higher, nobler faculties are perverted to serve animal lust and the sacred eternal interests are not regarded. You know, Ecclesiastes 6 and verse 7 says, All the labor of man is for his mouth and yet the appetite is not filled. Now, when we talk about appetite, it goes much deeper than what we put into our belly, doesn't it? Did the first temptation deal only with food? Or was there more to it than that? There's more meaning to the word appetite than that which deals with food, friends. In fact, let's look at a definition. The fourth edition of Webster's New World College Dictionary for you young folk. It states this definition for appetite. It says, A desire to satisfy some craving of the body, any strong desire or craving. 
what is it there's some of these fast food places um, I don't remember the one right off the top of my head but uh, they're one of their their ad appeals is uh, feed the crave or something like that right you see Eve fell for this temptation in the garden and it wasn't just the taste of the fruit that whetted her appetite it was what the deceiver said the fruit would give to her that tempted the appetite as well. Notice what it says in Genesis 3, 6. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also unto her husband with her and he did eat. So it's more than just a uh, a matter of food, what we feed ourselves when we talk about appetite. Back to the Desire of Ages, page 122. From the time of Adam to that of Christ, self-indulgence had increased the power of the appetites and passions until they had almost unlimited control. Thus men had become debased and diseased, and of themselves it was impossible for them to overcome. In man's behalf, Christ conquered by enduring the severest test. For our sake, he exercised a self-control stronger than hunger or death. For our sakes, friends. He did this. For our sakes. That's the love of God, isn't it? Of all the lessons to be learned from our Lord's first great temptation, none is more important than that bearing upon the control of the appetites and passions. In all ages, temptations appealing to the physical nature have been most effectual in corrupting and degrading mankind. Through intemperance, Satan works to destroy the mental and moral powers that God gave to man as a priceless endowment. Thus it becomes impossible for men to appreciate things of eternal worth. Through sensual indulgence, Satan seeks to blot from the soul every trace of likeness to God. Friends, when he just sees us because we're created in God's image, he hates us. And he'll do anything he can to destroy you. He'll use family. He'll use the closest thing to you if he can to destroy you. Don't doubt it. But when we talk about appetite, how can our appetites be manifested? Well, I want you to notice how Paul describes it. Because he does. He describes it in Galatians chapter 5. Let's look at verses 19 to 21. And he's talking, see, here about the, the flesh. See, and that's, that's how it's manifested. He says, Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these? Adultery, fornication, uncleanness. That means impure motives. Impure motives. People can't read our hearts. But we know what's going on. We may be doing something for something, uh, a, a, an impure motive, but on the outside it looks like it's a righteous motive. Uncleanness. Lasciviousness. That's unbridled lust. Uh, idolatry. Witchcraft. Hatred. Variance. That's a... A Greek word means contention. Uh, emulations. Uh, that Greek word, it means overzealousness. And that's what fanaticism is. It's, 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 it's adding to or taking away from God's word. That's what fanaticism is. Overzealousness, see. Uh, wrath, strife, seditions. Uh, seditions is, is dissension. You know, argumentative. Uh, people like to do that. They like to to bring up strife. Um, heresies, verse 21. Envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, that means rioting, uh, and such like. Of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And so we can see that there are many different types of appetites, can't we? And, and please understand, that Jesus overcame all of these appetites in his victory over the devil. Some people, I mean, I've had people ask me, well, he was tempted just three times. <laughs> We're going to find that 
those three times cover every single temptation that the devil could ever uh, bring to a person. See? So, when we look at what appetite involves in this first temptation, I mean, Jesus conquered the devil on all these appetites. And so we have no excuses, friends. <laughs> we really have no excuses. We have the example of Christ to lead the way for each one of us. Praise his name forever. We have a way out of the gutter. A way to conquer these appetites in the flesh. In John 16, Jesus said, These things I have spoken unto you that in me ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Praise God. And how did Jesus overcome the world? The answer is found right there in Matthew 4. How did Jesus deal with this temptation and thus overcome the world? Matthew 4, verse 4. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Christ's faith in God and his knowledge of God's will were founded in the Scriptures. I mean, from childhood, Christ had studied the, the Scriptures with diligence. He was intimately acquainted with the Scriptures. And, and in this lays the secret of, of his strength to meet temptation, and it is the secret for strength for us to meet temptation. It is faith, friends, that brings victory over the world, 1 John 5 and verse 4. And faith is developed through a study of the Scriptures, Romans 10, 17. Faith cometh by hearing the Word of God. So right here Christ affirms that adherence to the, the written Word of God is of greater value and importance than even the performance of a miracle to turn stones of the wilderness into bread. It's more important. Christ's quotations, and if you think about this, it wasn't something new. Christ's quotations from Scripture upon this occasion were all taken from the book of Deuteronomy. That's how well he knew Scriptures. Of course, they didn't have the New Testament when Jesus was here, right? <laughs> Some people want to get rid of the, the Old Testament. That's all Jesus had. Jesus was just repeating the words he had spoken to Israel some 1,400 years uh, before. These words are recorded in Deuteronomy 8, verses 2 and 3. Notice what it says. And thou shalt remember all the way which the Lord thy God led thee these 40 years in the wilderness, to humble thee and to prove thee, to know what was in thine heart, whether thou wouldest keep his commandments or no. And he humbled thee and suffered thee to hunger and fed thee with manna, which thou knewest not, neither did thy fathers know, that he might make thee know that man doth not live by bread only, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord doth man live. In the wilderness, when all their, their sustenance failed, God sent his people manna from heaven and a sufficient and constant supply was given to them for 40 years. This was to teach them, friends, that while they trusted in God and walked in His ways, He would never forsake them. The Savior now, in this experience, He, he practiced the lesson He taught to Israel. By the Word of God, help had been given to the Hebrews, and by that same Word it was given to Jesus in the wilderness. It's really interesting you know, it's very interesting. When you look through the Bible and you see how the Word of God is compared so often with our physical sustenance, with food. Jesus said, My meat is to do the will of Him that sent me. John 4.34 Jeremiah spoke of, uh, of um, finding and eating the words of God and of their becoming to Him the joy and rejoicing of His heart. Job declared, I have esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. John said that Jesus, the living word, remember, was the living bread which came down from heaven. Paul spoke of tasting the good word of God. Peter referred to the sincere milk of the word by which the Christian is to grow. It's also of vital importance for us to heed every word 
of God, isn't it? We're not at liberty to select from the Word of God those portions that appeal to us and reject the ones that don't. Either God is our God or He isn't. That's why Joshua says, Choose ye this day (laughs) who's going to be your authority. God has provided, friends, a balanced spiritual diet for His children. And those who eat only what pleases their fancy cannot expect to enjoy a healthy Christian experience or to reach Christian maturity for that matter. Even the least commandments of God are indispensable for the one who would enter into the kingdom of heaven. Amen? But here, back in the wilderness, Jesus waited on God's timing to to bring relief. And that is a great lesson for us. He was in the wilderness in obedience to God and he would not get food by following the suggestions of Satan. In the presence of the entire universe, he showed that it is better to suffer than to depart in any way from the will of God. And so Jesus showed us that we must be doers of the word, not just hearers only. Let me share this with you as I close up. And it's it's interesting. I, I saw a message last Sabbath uh, by E.E. E. Cleveland, and he said, uh, I'm going to close up, and he said, that takes 20 minutes. He said, Clo- closing up <laughs> doesn't mean, okay, i got a couple minutes here. Closing up means i got 20, 30 minutes. <laughs> I don't have that long. <laughs> I thought that was, I just had to chuckle at that. The Desire, the desire of Ages, page 123. The prince of this world cometh, said Jesus, and hath nothing in me. John 14.30 There was in him nothing that responded to Satan's sophistry. He did not consent to sin. Not even by a thought did he yield to temptation. So it may be with us. Christ's humanity was united with divinity. He was fitted for the conflict by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And he came to make us partakers of the divine nature. So long as we are united to him by faith, sin has no more dominion over us. God reaches for the hand of faith in us to direct it, to lay fast hold upon the divinity of Christ that we may attain to perfection of character. And how this is accomplished, Christ has shown us. By what means did he overcome in the conflict with Satan? By the word of God. Only by the word could he resist temptation. It is written, he said, and unto us are given exceeding great and precious promises that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Second Peter 1.4 Every promise in God's word is ours. By every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God are we to live. When assailed by temptation, look not to circumstances or to the weakness of self, but to the power of the word. All its strength is yours. Thy word, says the psalmist, have I hid in mine heart that I might not sin against thee. By the word of thy lips I have kept me from the paths of the destroyer. Friends, true men are to... Do justly and to love mercy, Micah says. And to love their neighbors as themselves, Jesus told us. But they are also to walk humbly with their God. Christ's reply uh, to the devil is a condemnation of the materialistic philosophy of life in whatever form it may appear. The possession uh, of things is not the ultimate. Neither is it desirable Uh, a desirable aim of life. Doing God's will is what fills the appetite with peace and joy and the substance, the true substance of life. We must grow in grace every day for there is a battle coming, friends. There is a battle coming. And in this last battle with Satan, those who are loyal to God will see every earthly support cut off. It's going to happen. And because they refuse to break God's law, 
earthly powers are going to coerce. They're going to be forbidden to buy or sell. It's not going to be easy. Don't think it is. But who are in whom are we to trust? Right? It's finally going to be decreed that they shall be put to death. That's what Revelation chapter 13 talks about. No one is going to escape having to make a decision in this battle. You can't run and hide from it. It's coming. It's coming to your door, every one of you. The Bible says so. Today's the day to prepare for that battle, friends. Today's the day. Today's the day to eat of that heavenly manna and not stones in the wilderness. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this Holy Sabbath day. We thank you for the opportunity for us uh, to come here together to, to study your holy word, to look at the example of Jesus in dealing with temptation. We've looked at the, the first temptation. We thank you for uh, the Holy Spirit who has brought these words to us and the truth. We pray that we may study them out to make sure that, uh, that uh, it is truth and to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. Um, friends, uh, we need to trust the Holy Spirit and pray for the Holy Spirit to guide and direct us every moment. And so, Lord, we thank you uh, for the promise of the Holy Spirit and for protecting your word for us who live here at the end of time, that we may know that you love us, that you have a plan for us, and that there's a way of escape through Jesus. We pray this in his blessed name. Amen.